New City, we are continuing in our series through the letter of 1 John, entitled, uh, That You May Know. Uh, and, and the thing that I love about what John is doing as he's writing to us uh, is, is that he's not just dropping knowledge on us and then moving on, but he's encouraging us through his writing and the Holy Spirit's inspiration to marinate on these truths so that our hearts can grasp them and grip them more effectively. And so that would affect the way that we live in life. And today we're going to see something about Jesus' friendship and advocacy toward us. Uh, and it's this, is that, that it's meant to give us confidence as we walk through this life together. Can you think of a time in your life where maybe you've lacked the confidence that that you wish that you, you had. Uh, maybe it was for a, a test that you had for school or, or, or for me, maybe it was for like a job interview or asking someone on a date or a financial decision like buying a house or a vehicle or right after a, maybe a failure in your life. It was just really hard for you to kind of get back on the horse in, in whatever respect uh, that that would be. Or maybe as you're adapting to a sudden change, these moments in my life seem endless, the opportunities to lack confidence. In fact, some of the most enlightening feedback that I've ever received from a close friend of mine uh, was this. He says, because of the way you're wired and your own personality, sometimes you can appear to be overconfident in situations. And, and as I've thought about that, uh, I had to confess back to him, you know that's true. And, and, and the reason is, is because it's my insecurity. That, that whenever I see an opportunity where I could, where I could fail or I could feel pain, I kind of grab life by the, the, the horns and I, and I try to just kind of will my way to greater confidence. But the thing that Jesus imparts to us, church, is a confidence that's rock solid and steady because of his friendship, love, and advocacy toward us. And this underconfidence that plagues my soul at times and your soul at times carries into my spiritual life. I, I, I bet the same thing happens to you sometimes. And, and Jesus knows this. And, and John says that the problem in his letter here, the problem is not, uh, is not that, that uh, we can't find confidence anywhere, but it's that we've placed our confidence in the wrong person. We've placed it in ourselves. But John invites us to place increasing confidence into the person and work of Jesus uh, through the friendship that he extends to us. The big idea of where we're headed today in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-6 through 6 is this, is that when we experience how well-loved and represented we are by Jesus, we'll live to share His advocacy with the world. So let me just share the three points that I want to draw out of this uh, for us to kind of give you a roadmap of where we're headed today. The first one is this, sin destroys our confidence in our salvation. Second thing is this, Jesus' advocacy overwhelms sin's power. And the third thing is this, experiencing his advocacy gives us a new purpose in life. And that's this, to share his advocacy with the world. So let's dig in to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 together. Here's what John writes. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, there's our key word for the day, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
Okay, so, so here we have it. The Apostle John is being gentle with us. He, 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 he's calling those that would read the letter little children. At this point, we know that the Apostle John, who was Jesus' very best friend as he walked the earth, knew his love well, was about 90 years old or so as he wrote this letter. And what he's doing is he's showing his tender pastoral heart toward those who struggle with sin. And, and here's what he says about the nature of, of sin is is that you shouldn't sin because that reveals that the kingdom of darkness has greater influence in your heart and soul than the kingdom of light like, like that's the motivation of why we we shouldn't sin and and sin is this separation from the kingdom of light it's these momentary lapses that we have these agreements with the darkness But he says, okay, here's the deal. You're going to sin, and when you sin, here's what you need to know about who Jesus is. If you're new here with us, maybe you didn't get to hear the the sermon last week. Let me just remind you about the nature of what sin does to our souls. Romans 6.23 says this, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what Paul says in the book of Romans is that what sin earns us is death. Sin is dangerous, John wants to remind us, because it destroys us. It destroys our holiness. It mars God's name because we're made in His image. It leaves us broken and weak and wounded. And it's an agreement with the kingdom of darkness. It's this false agreement that there's a possibility for life apart from God. And we know that not to be true. But that's ultimately what we're saying when we sin. And, you know, last week we talked about confession and how important it is in, in the Christian life because it's, it's like the, the window to another world in the kingdom of God. That if we confess our sins, that He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in the context of Jesus being our advocate, here's what confession is. It's, 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 if we think about a legal setting like we would think about for an advocate, like a lawyer or something like that, a confession is our agreement that we've blown it. And in confession, most times we're hoping we might not get what we deserve because of our honesty. We're hoping that if we could just be honest, maybe our punishment might be reduced. And what we see is that darkness, the kingdom of darkness, when we're living in, when we're sinning, it, it tends to mute the advocacy that Jesus promises to us unless it is confessed. So here's what can happen. We sin and we begin inadvertently hitting the mute button on God's grace by living in the dark. We do this because our story keeps changing. We, we say, I'm never going to do that again, Jesus. Tomorrow's going to be better, I promise. And the next day we do the same thing and we think there's no way that he can still stand in my corner when I struggle with sin so deeply and we feel shame and we keep hiding. And there's this side of darkness in our souls and in our walk with the Lord that hasn't been dealt with by the cross because we're terrified of confessing and admitting our sin. And so sin keeps its power over our lives, its stronghold over our lives because it thrives in the darkness. And we mute God's grace by keeping our sin in the darkness. And when we do that, the best we can hope for is a parole-like 
experience of redemption. I promise I'll be good. Today is a new day. Just relax my sentence of bondage to sin because of my good behavior. We plea with God that way. But this is not what John is writing about when it comes to the promise of what Jesus has done for us. How often do you live like that? You live like you're on parole with God because of your sin. Instead of knowing that you're deeply loved and wholly forgiven. John is writing to show us that our advocate is getting moment by moment updates about our life, about our whereabouts, and about our spiritual condition and journey. I mean, I might invite you to text your friends right now and just let them know. You've been found out and you don't have to convince Jesus to love you anymore. Because so many times that's what we do, isn't it? We think that we have to convince Jesus that we're lovable. I think John is writing about this from a whole different perspective. Part of what John is writing about in Jesus' advocacy is he's contending that we might know the love of God and the advocacy that Jesus has secured for us. He's trying to convince our hearts that grace is that good. But we have to understand the underbelly of sin and what it has cost Jesus and the Father for us to truly know the rock-solid assurance of the redemption that we have in God's grace. So that's why we have to always talk about sin, church, because it is the entry point to us knowing, feeling, and living in redemption. So the angle that we're going to hit about this redemption that Jesus promises to us today is this word advocacy that John uses. Jesus' advocacy overwhelms sin's power. If you've ever found yourself in a place where you need legal representation, um, like a close friend of mine who got a uh, $650 ticket for speeding in Las Vegas through a construction zone, he's just a close friend. I I know him pretty well. Uh, It's me. And, you know, you've got this decision to make, and it's this. It's, do I call the guy on the billboard that promises to get me out of trouble, Or do I reach out to a friend who knows a friend who is a good attorney? You know, what am I going to do in that moment? Because no one wants an advocate or a lawyer or a representative who cares nothing about them. No, No, I've never heard anyone say, just give me a mediocre lawyer who will represent my case. But what do we want? We want someone that will actually care for us in the process. What we're looking for, what we're longing for is an advocate. The best way to know Jesus is not from a a perspective like you know maybe a detached, distant relative in your family, but as a personal advocate. This is the invitation for you to know Jesus as a friend, as personal advocate. Because if we don't know Jesus as advocate, we don't know him at all, church. Let me say it again. If we don't know Jesus as our advocate, we don't know him at all. If we don't need Jesus to plead our case, we don't know Jesus. Christian, you are not on parole because Jesus has manipulated your case into God showing you favor. No, no, no. Jesus' mission in our hearts is to convince us that justice has actually already been served by the cross. That's my hope and my prayer for you today, that you'd be so sure 
of what Jesus has done for you. Let's, let's continue reading in 1 John chapter 2 here. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But, there's the key word there, but it's going to happen, right? It's going to happen today. If anyone does sin, here's what you need to know. We have an advocate with the Father. His name, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him. I love that. How do we know that we've come to know Him? If we keep His commandments. If we start looking like Him. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. So Jesus isn't our best representative before our Father in Heaven, the judge, because of His manipulative tactics that he, that he twists God's arm into loving us. That's, that's not why Jesus is our best advocate, but because of his genuine advocacy for your heart and for mine. We're, we're, we're not only Jesus's sole client, that's us, his main objective, his whole purpose in life is to represent us before our Father in heaven, but we're also his family. Think about that. God has sent Jesus as our perfect older brother to care for us, and he just happens to be rich, he just happens to be power, and he just happens to be the king of the world, just and righteous and humble, all in one. And he is for us, he's for you. He's our advocate. And nothing can stop Jesus from rescuing us from the grip of death and sin, other than our own unbelief in the fact that he's done that for us. So just quickly here, what is an advocate? I wanna make sure we're all on the same page here. It's this really fascinating word in the Greek language called paraclete. Can you say that 10 times fast with me, kids? Paraclete, 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 right? It's this Greek word that's so interesting because it has, it has two parts to the word. It has the prefix para, which means close beside. And then cleat means to make a call. So to put these two words together to make the word paraclete, is to say it like this, especially in terms of him being our advocate, is that he's close enough to our situation, he's close enough to our story to make the right call, to represent us well, and to lead us on the right path. Jesus is our paraclete means that he's close enough to who we are to represent us wholly and fully and without blemish. He's come alongside us to care for us. So we can never come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you just don't understand my experience in this world. You just don't understand what happened to me because he's close enough to us to make the right call. So that's who Jesus is. We also see in the book of John, chapters 14 and 15, that, that Jesus says he's going to send another helper, another paraclete into the world, the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus, as we're going to talk about, is at the right hand of the Father now representing us for all eternity he sent His Spirit to live in our hearts to make His advocacy known, to make it real to us that God is who He says He is. So what does an advocate do for us? Three things. The first thing is this, is that an advocate cares and comforts. In John 15, 26, John says that a paraclete is a comforter. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, 
about Jesus, that we're to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. So you know that friend that you typically call when life kind of goes off the rails and you just kind of verbally vomit all over them, right? And you're like, man, I feel great. And your friend's like, yeah, of course you feel great because you just dumped it all on me. Well, Jesus is saying, what, what Peter's saying about Jesus is Jesus is actually inviting us to be cared for by him. To cast all of our cares, think of a net, to cast it, to let it go, and to let it land on Jesus. This is what he invites us to do as he cares for us. I've had to ask myself this question this week, though. Do I really know Jesus this way as a, as a friend, as an advocate, as a comforter to me? Do I really know Jesus' love like I do the love of my very best friend in the world? It seems mushy and romantic or whatever and just kind of gushy. It feels weird, doesn't it? But Jesus is inviting us into that type of a friendship. And we fail to understand His advocacy as deeply as we can when we don't let our hearts go there with Jesus. Let me remind you of what John 15 said that I opened the service with. Jesus said to His disciples on the night that He was going to be betrayed and all of His friends were going to scatter and betray Him and deny Him, He said this to secure their hearts about who he was and his relationship with them. No longer do I call you servants. The servant does not know what his master is doing. In other words, friends, I've told you everything about me. Full disclosure. You know everything about me. And he says, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I made known to you. You didn't choose me as friend, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, in Jesus' name, He may give it to you. And these things I've commanded you so that you will love one another. Church, I just want you to ask, just jot this question down to ask yourself this week. What would it look like to truly know Jesus as friend? Because that's the beginning of understanding Him as advocate, as helper, as comforter for you. Second thing that Jesus does as an advocate for us is that he secures our future. Let's read 1 John 2.2 again. It says this, he's the propitiation, there's that $10 word for us, for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. So this, you know, we all have doctrine, whether we know it or not, we all have things that we believe to be true about who God is, things that guide our lives about who we think God is. What my aim is, to to help you with today is that the the doctrine of the Bible would become the doctrine of your life. And one of those key words that the Bible uses to describe this nature to us is propitiation. And and here's, here's what happens when Jesus legally secures us, right? We've got a sin payment that we owe to the Father as just judge because of our unrighteousness. And so Jesus as advocate steps in to plead our case. And on the cross, what was happening is that all of God's just punishment and wrath against sin, everything that, that he was, everything that we were owed, Jesus absorbed. And, and when Jesus begins to feel this, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he says to his father when this is happening. Because Jesus was bearing punishment for your past for your present and your future sins in that moment on the cross is the only one who's ever lived that's righteous. He didn't deserve it, but you did. 
And three things are happening when Jesus is doing this. Jesus is accomplishing, in other words, the atonement, the satisfaction for uh, our sins, the payment that was due. First thing is this, expiation. I know it's a big word. It means this. It means the, the, the prefix ex means out of. So it's a removal of God's wrath against sin from your account. So that, that wrath that you've deserved with your sin has to be removed from you for God's disposition to be changed against you. So God is not going to punish Jesus for your sin and then turn around and punish you for your sin if you have faith in Jesus. Let me say it again. This means that God is not going to punish Jesus for your sin on the cross and then turn around and do the same thing for you because God is just and he's truthful. He can't exact that from Jesus and then from you. That wouldn't be just of him. So Jesus, God removes the guilt, the wrath of sin against us because it has been paid finally and fully by Jesus. And so our sin no longer has a, you know, a lot of times we live like we've got a lean on our life. Like we've, we owe something to God because of how we lived and what we've done. But in Jesus, that is not the case. It is finished, Jesus said. And that's what it means for us, for him to expiate our sin from us. Second thing is this, propitiation. The prefix for this word means for. So because God's wrath reserved for sin was applied toward Jesus instead of you, now his disposition toward you, the way that he sees you, the way that he looks at you, the way that he thinks about you has radically been transformed and changed. And it's been changed forever. Now God the Father looks at me and he looks at you and he looks at everyone who calls on Jesus for salvation and he, he sings this anthem over your life. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Church, did you know that because Jesus has become the propitiation for our sin that you are already well pleasing to God? That your sin, because the punishment for sin has already been dealt with, no longer affects God's disposition toward you. That he is always and only seeing you as his beloved son or daughter in whom he's well pleased. Friend, you are well pleasing to God. You are an aroma to him. Your life sings of the beauty of Jesus and God is so pleased in you. This is why this truth is so powerful for our hearts. And when we see this, it should give us this type of just rock-solid confidence. The God isn't going to turn around and change his mind about us because Jesus constantly lives to plead our case and to speak for us. We can stop these attitudes that say, well, I blew it today. I guess I can give it another try tomorrow. That's the devil talking because Jesus is your advocate. There's not a moment that he's not in your corner pleading your case and also convincing you and me that our, that our sentence has been dealt with in full, that our, that our punishment has been paid for in full. So many times we as Christians fail to live in the joy of the cross 
Because we try to pay a debt that's already been paid. Have you, you ever been at a restaurant before and you're fully expecting to pay for the other person? Some of you never have, and we'll talk about that later. But anyway, uh, you're the moochers in the church. That's okay. We'll deal with it later. But uh, have you ever been in a place you're fully expecting to pay for the meal and then your buddy slips out to go to the restroom and he slips the credit card to the server? Some of you are longing to go back to a restaurant and, and experience that. You pay for everybody, but I get that. I, I, I miss it too. But, but I think a lot of times we, we, we fight against God like that. We're trying to slip our credit card in when it's already been paid in full. And the invitation for us is to see him as he really is, finally and fully absorbing the wrath of God. And the third thing that Jesus gives us is not only care and comfort and, and, uh, and, and the assurance that we need, but he also imputes righteousness to us. First John 2, 2 says this about Jesus. Jesus Christ, the righteous, gives him this title. The definite article, the righteous. Righteousness means this. It's, it's when it's applied to a person that it's as if you've always and only done the right thing. Some of us, when we're younger, especially as kids, we think that that's true of us. It doesn't take us long later in life to realize that it's never been true. But when your Father in heaven sees you because Jesus Christ, the righteous, has spoken for you and dealt with your sin, he sees you as sinless. Did you know that? You can't imagine seeing yourself that way. God can't imagine not seeing you that way because of what Jesus has done. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's a passage we keep coming back to because it's so rich. For our sake, for the sake of us as his children, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, to become sin, to take on sin, who knew no sin, he'd never experienced sin before, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The righteous, meaning that we have always and only done the right thing in God's sight. How would that change your heart and your life and your joy to know that that's how God sees you every single day of your life. Wouldn't it change things for you? We have become, are becoming, and will become righteous as long as we live on this earth. Because our advocate has pleaded our case and is pleading our case and will continue to plead our case from now and forevermore. And he will also continue to plead this other case with us, that it is finished, so we can stop trying to position ourselves to pay a debt that's already been paid. That's really good news, church. The third thing that Jesus does for us as advocate is so key because it helps us understand the importance of the resurrection. It's this, is that he's constantly interceding on our behalf. So not only does Jesus care for us, invite us to cast all of our anxieties and cares on him. Not only does he secure our future through expiation, propitiation, not only does he does that, but he also intercedes for us as an advocate. So picture it like this. Jesus is the son of the judge, and he's closer than a brother to us, and he lives forever to do one thing, represent you before your father in heaven. You're his only client. Picture that. That's what Jesus is doing right now. The book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 34 says, here's what Jesus is doing. He's seated at the right hand of the Father right now. That's where Jesus is. You ever wonder where Jesus is? Jesus, could you just show up in my life? Well, the problem is, if he were to show up physically here, he wouldn't be interceding for you. When he shows up, it's going to be the end of time to judge the world. 
And those that are in Jesus will be found perfectly righteous before their Father in heaven. So because Jesus is pleading your case with your Father in heaven, right now, He sent the Helper, the Spirit, the other paraclete to come and confirm these things in our hearts as we hear these truths and our lives are transformed. Hebrews 7.25 says this about His intercession. He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. Uttermost is a word we don't use often, but it means this, the greatest possible way, the deepest possible way, the most extreme possible way. That's how Jesus has come to save you. And how, who is he going to do that for? He's going to do that for those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus. You can't get to God by yourself. We get to God through Jesus. We try to get to God by ourselves. We get judgment because sin has to be dealt with. We get to God through Jesus. We get grace. This is what he's saying here. And it's saying, it's saying that at the right hand of the Father in heaven, he always lives to make intercession for them. So when we celebrate Easter like we did a few weeks ago and we say he's risen, he's risen indeed, the significance of him being risen is that he's living to make intercession for us. He's living to plead our case. And the book of Revelation in chapters 4, 5, and 8 talk about how he stores the prayers of the saints. It's like an incense to his Father in heaven. He treasures your prayer, church. He treasures the fact that he gets to intercede for you. When was the last time that you approached your prayer closet with such eagerness because Jesus treasured what you were going to approach him with that day? What would it look like in your prayer life to approach Jesus that way? That he can't wait to hear from you. He can't wait to intercede for you. Jesus is able to save us forever because he's interceding for us forever. Today, you and I are being saved because Jesus is the greatest high priest who's ever lived and is representing us before our Father. And what he's doing is he's showing how righteous and perfect we are for now and forevermore before our Father in heaven. He's standing up in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father saying, Father, remember my life. That's who Ryan is of the cross. Father, remember my righteousness. That's who Eli is because of the cross. Father, remember my redemption. That's who Maya is because of the cross and the resurrection. Father, remember what I've done. Remember how I went to earth. Remember my incarnation. Remember my perfect life and body. That's, that's who Juan is because of the cross. Father, remember me as you look at them because they are who I am because they're hidden in me. Doesn't that change the way that you see Jesus as an advocate? And through our confession of sin, sin is being removed from our account and righteousness is being deposited every single moment of every single day for every single year of every single you know, millennium until Jesus returns. That's what's happening, has always been happening because of Jesus. Now, as, as you see your salvation that way, you see Jesus as friend, it begins to change you. And this is why John shares that an experience of his advocacy will give us a new purpose in life to share his advocacy. 
We won't keep hoarding grace because it's such good news. There's two things I just want to point out about this passage that lead us to a new purpose in life. Is that when Jesus steps in for us, we can stop trying to spend all of our moments in every single day trying to figure out how we're going to appear righteous before God through everything that we earn and do and say. We can just take ourselves out of the picture, right? And we can live fully for Him. That's the invitation for us because we have a new purpose in life and it's not sin management in my life. It's not posturing myself before the Father, but it's being sold out for Christ, living to make Him known. And we do this in two ways. We see Jesus as a model and we continue to live on His mission. Let's look at uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Whoever keeps His word in Him Truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him, and whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Uh, you know, I love my kids. You guys get to hear a lot about them. Um, and it's, it's so great because they all go through different seasons where our relationship deepens and grows and expands. And uh, my youngest son, Roman's in this, this really sweet season for me right now uh, where he wants to do everything with me. Um, I know it always might not be like this, but for right now, I'm just kind of soaking it in. Daddy, are you going to work in the yard today? Because if you're working in the yard, I'm working in the yard. Daddy, are you, are you going to get cheese on your cheeseburger from Five Guys? That's one of our favorites. Uh, yeah, buddy, I am. Well, if you're going to get cheese, I'm going to get cheese. I, I just love it because there's this imitation factor of our relationship that is, that is beautiful and it just makes sense. I mean... Think about this. I mean, even with your friendships, you begin, your friends begin to rub off on you and you say things that they might say. You might start looking the way that they look, appearing the way that they appear. I always find that interesting how older couples just start looking like each other over time. But um, imitation is this thing that's natural for deep friendships because abiding, what Jesus invites us to, to stay and remain in Him, is about friendship. First and foremost, it's about receiving and giving love. And it leads to a life that imitates Jesus. I'll never forget my friend Brian Buck, what he said to me. He's a church planner in Portland. And he said this to me when he was still in Atlanta. He said, uh, he said Ryan, the way that I view church planting is like this father and son endeavor. We work with dad to build the kingdom. Man, I, I just wish I could remember that that was my job day in, day out as a pastor. That I get to go to work with dad today and see him build his kingdom. Have you seen Jesus that way lately? This, this shift happens in us when we begin to love Jesus as a friend and one who cares deeply for us. That, that we're no longer, we're no longer uh, motivated out of guilt and shame to imitate his life to the world, to replicate it to the world, to live out his commandments, to live in the way that he walked. But we are instead motivated out of deep gratitude because of so much that he has done for us and the love that he has extended to us. That's a different kind of obedience than the checklist kind, isn't it? This is the type of imitation that John says is happening in someone who understands the actual advocacy, friendship, and love that Jesus Christ extends to us. We imitate him. The second thing is this, the mission. We live to make his mission known to the world. 
First John chapter two, two, we've read it once, I'll read it again. He is the propitiation for our sins. So he's dealt finally and fully with our sin. But not only for ours, don't you go hoarding grace, he says, but also for the sins of the whole world. So not only do we want to imitate Jesus because of his love and friendship and kindness and advocacy toward us, but we also want to join him on his mission. This verse is interesting and kind of a hotly debated verse for many people because it's talking about who the atonement or what the cross accomplished is for. Like, who is it actually for? You could read this verse and say, sounds like Jesus has propitiated every person on the face of the universe's sin. But we, as we read scripture, we know that couldn't be true because that would make us all universalists. We know that not everyone's going to bow their knee to Jesus. So that can't possibly be the way that we read this verse. Here's the way that I sense this word reading as I read uh, other scriptures surrounding it. Uh, the atonement of Jesus or what Jesus accomplished on the cross is sufficient enough for all the sins of the world. Like if that was what Jesus wanted to do, it could be done. That's a powerful and deep the cross is. But it is only efficient or effective for those who call Jesus Lord through faith. And, and this shows us that John is indicating the best interpretation of this pa passage is for us to understand it as the nature of God's mission in the world. That, that, that this promise isn't just for some Jews that are in Jerusalem at the first church there, but this promise is to go to the ends of the earth, every tribe, tongue, and nation. In other words, because Jesus has loved us so deep and so well and so fully, we now make it our mission to see that the whole world hears about this Jesus. You remember the words that Jesus left his disciples with in Matthew 28? They're this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He's telling his disciples this, parting words. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And here's the clincher. Here's the thing that holds it all together. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Church, Jesus is never, ever, ever, ever going to relent from his mission of being your advocate before your Father in heaven, pleading your case as a righteous son or daughter. And his spirit is never, ever, ever, ever going to stop convincing your heart that that's true. I hope this is good news to you today. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have loved us so well when we were so unlovable. Lord, we give thanks that uh, Jesus is a friend to us and that you are a father to us and that we are part of the family of God. Lord, I pray that you'd be near to us during this season. Wow, it's a weird time to live in the family of God. We have to believe that there's a deepening work of grace happening among us. So God, would you encourage our hearts miraculously through the Spirit and lead us to encourage one another on this walk. And Lord, Father, if there's anyone who's heard this message today that doesn't know you as Lord, God, I pray that you would grip their hearts to the point of response repentance and faith you would grant to them. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the gift of your life. 
And it's in your name we pray. Amen.